Hey, welcome to this panel, everybody. Let's say the creed up to where we're at, in case you weren't here on Monday to recite our new, new parts. We have who was conceived by the Holy Spirit from last week, and then this week, born of the Virgin Mary. Do you want to try it with me? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. We are, in the Bible this week, still in the prophets. There are a lot of prophetic books, and it seems really worthwhile to continue to cover those prophets and talk about who they are, how they functioned. Last week, we read a bunch of that 8th century prophetic group, Isaiah and Micah and Amos and Hosea. This week, we have two really long prophetic books, Ezekiel and Jeremiah, that I asked you um, to read portions of it. And we learned a little bit about the historical context that's been going on in Israel. It's, it's a context of decline in Israel, okay? These prophets are still offering hope, weirdly, bizarrely at points, even though everything seems to be going wrong. Um, but they're really calling for a lot of repentance that seems not to be happening in the narrative. And in the next two weeks, um, as we finish out the Old Testament part of the Bible, um, we'll be looking at how Israel's story more or less ends in, in this particular part of the Bible that Christians call the Old Testament. And we had a spoiler alert last Monday. It does not end well, in a sense. It ends with a disaster. And we'll be, and we'll be moving into the part of the creed, which is about suffering and death. And we're going to be talking about suffering and death in really serious ways in the next two weeks. So um, that's happening. Um, on the one hand, the prophets are here to announce that suffering and death in ways that are sometimes really stark and sometimes really um, hopeful for what could come after it. Um, but always surprising and always very um, colorful in their language and in their description of their world. I'm so, so happy to have this panel uh, with us today, um, and I want to introduce them to you and get right to it. To my right, a return panelist from the very first week of class, Dr. Isaac Choi, PhD from Notre Dame, MDiv from Princeton, BA from Harvard. How can you get better than that? Um, Dr. Choi is, is, is a scholar of philosophy, but also theology. He's a newer faculty member. He teaches in the William Penn Honors Program and also in the College of Christian Studies. Welcome back, Dr. Choi. Thank you so much. Yeah, you're welcome. Uh, Dr. Abigail Favalli, a close friend of mine for many years, has her PhD from the University of St. Andrews in Scotland. She is the director of the William Penn Honors Program. She's the author of a recent popular new memoir called Into the Deep, An Unlikely Catholic Conversion. Um, she's a scholar of contemporary literature. She's won awards literally for her nonfiction scholarly writing as well as for short story writing. We're so pleased to have you here, Dr. Favalli. Welcome. Thank you. And last, but definitely not least, Dr. Steve Sherwood. Uh, Dr. Sherwood is one of my colleagues in the College of Christian Studies. If you recognize that name, it's because he's one of the co-authors of the textbook, uh, The Bible, Ancient Context, and Ongoing Community. Um, he writes the ongoing community part of the textbook that you've been reading. Isn't it weird to see an author? You think, like, is that how, I, is that how you thought he would look? Did you think he would look like that? You did, maybe because you knew him. Um, <laughs> Dr. Sherwood is our pastoral presence as well for the week. We like to have somebody who's had some kind of like gritty pastoral experience, has worked for many decades actually for a group called Young Life. Have any of you done anything with Young Life in high school or any, some, some nods of the head? Um, and has done youth pastoring work and speaking on that front all across the country. Dr. Sherwood, we're so pleased to have you here with us. Thank you. So how about this for a first question? The prophets were always, I mean, almost all of them that we've read so far were always announcing repentance. Uh, and, 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 and call, or I should say, calling for Israel to repent. Repent, repent, repent. What are they supposed to repent from? All kinds of things. Um, Christians just um, began the obs observation of um, what is called Lent in the liturgical traditions. On Wednesday, did you see people with the little ashen 
cross things on their head or the dirt smudged on their forehead. It was a reminder that we're but dust, we're very frail and we're sinful beings who need to repent. That just began on Wednesday and it runs all the way through Easter as a preparation for Easter. I think that's a simple explanation of what Lent is. I, I wonder, I wanna ask the panelists, just anyone who wants to take up this question, do Christians really need to repent? I mean, I thought there was this Jesus character who died on the cross. I thought that was Jesus dying for our sins. If Jesus already died for my sins, and I acknowledge mentally, if I assent to the fact that he did that, isn't that enough? What, what, you know, does God really care about like my petty lies and indiscretions to other people? Like what's, what's, the, what's the problem? Do, do we have anything, do Christians have anything to repent for today in light of the idea that Jesus died for our sins? Yes, Brian, God cares about your petty lies and indiscretions. <laughs> <laughs> there Sorry. are many, there are many of them, there are many. Um, because he wants, he wants your conscience, he wants your heart, he wants your soul. So um, I come from a tradition, I'm Catholic, where um, we believe in salvation as ongoing sanctification. We just read Hebrews, the book of Hebrews in uh, the honors program <clears throat> this week, last week, recently, um, this week. It's been a long week. Um, and there's a persistent theme in, in Hebrews of endurance, persistence. So faith as ongoing fidelity to Christ. Um, and that involves repentance. That involves seasons of turning toward ourself, increasing in self-knowledge and realizing um, the parts in our life yet that we haven't let the grace of Christ fully illuminate and heal and draw to himself. So that's what Lent is about. I mean, is there another model for what salvation is or repentance? Or is, is that the only model? I mean, is that, isn't that what all Christians should be doing at all times? Like an ongoing, you, you mentioned the word sanctification. Like what, what, is, what does that mean exactly? That's being made holy. Mm. And not only Catholics talk about that. I mean, Luther talks about that we are simultaneously sanctus and pectador, like that we are saints and sinners. Like we are saved, but we are also still sinners. And, you know, in a biblical sense, righteousness is this relational concept, you know, that, that to be righteous is to be in right relationships. And think about, you know, your relationships, you have a close friend or your parents or maybe you're in a dating relationship and, and it's a it's a whole you know you're not on the edge of being expelled from that relationship at every moment but every day there's things that happen that that do harm perhaps to the relationship and need to be apologized for repented from you know like gosh i really blew it this morning sorry i was you know so cranky about you know whatever it was that happened and and so i think yeah, there's, it, it's not a matter of I'm on the outside with God unless and, and every day I repent all these things at the end of the day. But within the context of our covenant relationship with, with God through Jesus, there's still the maintenance of that, the, the ongoing care for that relationship. And, and that involved, part of that, I think, is repentance. I mean, just a further thought there. Um, it seems that there's this, repeated progression of, in people through history that as they mature and grow in the Christian faith, um, they realize depths of their own sin that they didn't even realize mm. they had, mm. right? So in some sense, it's kind of like you may have repented in the past of all your sins that you were aware of, but maybe you didn't even understand how deep it went, mm. right? I mean, like, so even in the Apostle Paul's writings, 
you, you see a progression if you, if you date his letters in a certain way, that he starts off like, oh, you know, I was a pretty bad guy, but now, then at the end, he's like, he's the worst of all sinners, right? <laughs> right. He, he gets to, to the point where, like, towards the end of his life, he's like, he didn't, he's like, I can't even understand why God would even have any mercy on me at all. Right. I think that that's true, right. that if, the longer you live, you start out your life thinking, or you start out your life of faith thinking, okay, I have some problems, I, I repent of those, but then, like, it's 5, 10, 20 years down the road, you're just like, actually, you know, I'm a lot worse than I thought I was when I was at 20 or whatever. What age? I mean, this has been a topic of ongoing conversation in our panels all semester. Like, how good or bad are people exactly, like, uh, as a whole? Like, are people really depraved? Is, is there a lot of goodness there, too? It also is a callback to the law, right? Our readings in Exodus and Leviticus, we had this, this comment back, way back in Leviticus, how there was a sacrifice for unintentional sins. Like, you know, maybe even things that you don't even know about, suggesting, slipping in this notion, maybe that there's, there's, a lot go, there's a lot of darkness going on in our lives that we can't always even put our finger on in a very clear way. I wonder to the panelists, maybe, you know, striking a more personal note, is there a particular prophetic book, maybe one of the ones I've mentioned that we've been reading, or it doesn't even have to be, it could be a different one too that we haven't read. It's always good to get a little view of some books that we haven't been able to discuss yet in class or read. That's been speaking to you just as a person of faith in a, in a profound way lately. And maybe something that's been meaningful to you, a particular verse or image from a prophet? I'll do two super quickly. I'll try to be as fast as possible. Um, Brian mentioned my young life background. One of the, I was a young life high school kid. And one of the only youth group talks I ever remember was a, a college student when I was a sophomore in high school telling the story of Hosea and Gomer and, and framing it as, in, in some ways, kind of a metaphor for how God loves us, you know, which, I, it, you know, that's what the text actually says. Hosea, love your wife Gomer as I love the Israelites. And, and that just had a very profound effect on me as a high school kid. I, 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 had, I was not familiar with that book of the Old Testament. I was not familiar with that story. And it really connected with me that God truly does love us in this relentless hesed kind of way, and it's mirrored in that story. Um, and, and then additionally, just this morning, I was going over some memory verses in my office before this, and there's a passage in Isaiah 50 that I, I, I really love. You know, come all you who are thirsty, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come by and eat. Come by wine and milk without money and without cost. And it's in the midst of that, okay, it, everything has crashed around us. You know, mm -hmm. it's not a time of, you know, it, it's a disaster for Israel, and yet Isaiah is saying, even in the midst of the utter barrenness of this, God, there's sustenance to be found with God. And, and, and I find that to really be helpful at times that, you know, life can seem pretty concerning. Mm. Uh, for me, like Isaiah and Zephaniah are very um, uh, meaningful in the last 10 years or so. Um, You've already talked about Isaiah, so I'm not going to talk about that. Zephaniah, though. Zephaniah, that's a deep cut. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, <laughs> it's a three-chapter three chapter long book in the Minor Prophets. Most people have never even read it or even heard of it. Um, but I was led to it, um, long story, but I was led to it, and it struck me in two different ways. One is, in chapter one, there's this call to repentance, and part of it is that Israel has no longer ceased to inquire of the Lord. Right? And that was, that was very pivotal in my own thinking about does God guide Christians today mm. or not, mm -hmm. right? And so that was something that was like, if, if this is one of the things that Zephaniah is calling the people to repentance of, right, then we as Christians should 
seek and inquire of the Lord as well in that way, right? Mm. Um, the other piece, though, is in Zephaniah 3, and kind of like the more comfort part of it, um, Zephaniah, especially this verse 317, it talks about, um, I, I want to quote it correctly, uh, the Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save. Mm. Um, he will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. Um, he will rejoice over you with singing, right? So it's almost like this, um, the bridegroom is singing over his bride in great delight and joy, right? Mm. And I, just something about that verse has always struck me and hit me really hard in terms of like the tenderness of God's love, mm. right? Even in the midst of judgment. Um, like usually we don't think of the Old Testament God as like this tender God. Right. Um, but I think that that's really resonated with me, especially after having children of my own. Mm. I mean, I guess that's a mixed metaphor, right? In terms of the <laughs> tenderness of your love for your children, but um, with regard to bride and bridegroom. But I think that that, mm. that verse has really kind of stuck with me in terms of like mm. picturing my relationship with God mm. uh, in that similar kind of way. Yeah. All right, I can think of a couple examples. I don't know exactly chapter and verse because I have a really bad head for numbers, but um, one, I believe, I think it's the first chapter of Jeremiah because I, th I think it's when God is actually calling Jeremiah. But there's a, a couple of verses, and I heard them read at Mass at a time when I was feeling particularly discouraged and in my faith. And there's a part of the, there's a couple of verses where it says, you know, this is God speaking, I have made you a a pillar of iron, a wall of bronze, a fortified city. And I just felt this like injection, <laughs> like <laughs> strength. Yes. And I was like, yeah. yeah. So, <laughs> you know, um, and to be even more sort of personal, I guess, sometimes, sometimes it can be difficult and be discouraging to be a Catholic in a very Protestant environment. And most of the time I, I, I don't feel that as a tension, but sometimes I do. And so the, those verses in particularly, I think, especially hearing them, during mass just gave me a sense of, a sense of spiritual strength that I continually draw on when I need to just feel mm -hmm. pumped up. Um, and then there's another set of verses, which again, I'm like, mm, I think it's Ezekiel, one of the major prophets. Um, again, I'm, I, I heard it in mass recently, but it's the description of Jerusalem as a nursing mother and that, you know, we will be drawn into her lap and we, like this, the description of us as nurslings and Jerusalem and Jerusalem is um, a figure for the church that appears in the Old Testament. And that I continually turn back to that verse because that's my experience of the church as a mother who has nourished me with her sacraments and um, who I can turn to for comfort. And so that imagery from the prophets has been very meaningful to me. Wow, these are great. I feel encouraged already. Uh, Jenna, do we have any kind of responses from the class on paper that you could read out to us? Yeah. Um, Sorry, forgive my voice, I'm sick. You're not um, forgiven, continue, <laughs> I'm just sick. All right, um, how much stock did the Israelites put in the words of prophets like Jeremiah and Ezekiel? When my group met on Wednesday, we admitted that none of us would particularly want to believe their messages. Did they recognize these prophets <laughs> as true prophets? And then wow. do you the other two questions? Yeah, no, let's stick with that one. That's okay. a great one. Like, <laughs> I mean, you read these books and it's like, you know, I mean, have you ever seen somebody, for example, probably anybody who's been to a big city a lot, or maybe some of you li have lived in a city, you've seen people on like street corners, right? Just like yelling stuff or ranting or raving. I can imagine that prophets must have looked like that to people at times. And I know what my reaction is to people like that too, which is just like, I try to walk away as fast as possible. Right? We looked at this image on Monday, right, of Jeremiah. He's standing at the door of the temple as people are streaming in, making fun of them as they come in for thinking that the temple would save them as they're all like ready for church and just having a nice time. Like, and he's like, no, no nice time. 
destroy. Like, you know, you can imagine what people's reaction would have been to that. I guess, I don't know, it's kind of a hard question, but how do you hear the prophetic voice in your life and not ignore it and just call it crazy? Do you, I mean, can you imagine what the reactions must have been like to these prophets? Maybe not good. Well, it certainly doesn't seem to have been good to Jeremiah. I, I, I mean, there's evidence throughout that book. I mean, he's sometimes called the weeping prophet or the failed prophet, you know, because he, he has a very long tenure, like 30 some years. And there's not really any evidence that the nation ever pays attention to him or does what he says. In fact, in, in, in the book, he often talks about these other prophets that you like because they tickle your ears, you know, like, like you like, you like what they say because they say stuff that makes you feel good, but they're lying to you. You know, they bind your wounds as if it, they're not serious, and yet, you know, you're, you're dying, and they're giving you a Band-Aid. You know, you have lung cancer, and they're giving you a cough drop, and I'm telling you the truth, and pay attention. And at least in his case, it doesn't seem as if they really ever do. Yeah, I think that's a great point, Steve, uh, that maybe the best kinds of prophecies aren't the ones that make you feel good. I some, every time I go into the library, I joke to the person, I'm sorry if it's been you at some point, if you work in the library, because you, you know there's this basket of blessings that are like you draw one, it's a blessing from scripture, which is so great, but I always tell them, no, you need another basket too, which is like a basket of curses or a basket of like calls <laughs> to repentance that aren't just these affirming therapeutic affirmations like, oh, you're amazing and everything's wonderful. Would that be a great prank actually? Jesus or wants to give you a back rub. You could, we could make our own and slip them in there. I do, just I actually kind of, like, of want to do this on maybe April Fool's or whatever. Yeah, that's... <laughs> Yeah. I know, right? Like, repent and believe in the gospel, you know? Anyway, so, um, but I could totally, I, I think that sometimes the best parts of the Bible are the ones that um, are kind of like a knife to the heart in a way or a punch to the gut. And I am sure that people didn't appreciate their messages in that time. Absolutely. But I also will say that if you're approaching the Bible as a Christian, you need to approach the Bible as a whole, um, as a continuous as a continuous text. So the prophecies are best understood um, looking backward through the lens of Christ as well. So um, that can, that's also, I think, a very important thing to mention. Hmm. Um, one final point. I think that um, the, the standard for identifying a genuine prophet in the Old Testament was always whether or not their predictions came true. Right? This is the Deuteronomistic Deuteronomy kind of 18, yep. Yeah. So, I mean, this is the standard. And so we don't always see it in all the prophets, but in some of them we do. So, for example, in Isaiah, right? Isaiah prophesied, I mean, I guess maybe you guys talked about this, but Isaiah prophesies about the Assyrian army saying, oh, you're not going to have to worry about them after tomorrow. Right, Isaiah 7, yes. And they get wiped out. And it's kind of like, I think a lot of people in Jerusalem probably started believing Isaiah was a genuine prophet after that, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, we don't see that in Jeremiah. Maybe God didn't give him any of those kind of predictive prophecies, and so people didn't believe him. But at least some people did, right? Because why are his writings preserved, right? At least some people among the Israelites believe that he was a genuine prophet for some reason. And we're not told why. But at least with Isaiah, for example, it seems that people believed him because some of the things he said actually came true, right? So I think that that is a dynamic that is kind of in the background with Rehard the Prophet, but we see glimpses of it. Right. Um, so this kind of miraculous kind of um, knowledge that they would have about right. either the present or the future, I think that that's a critical piece. Yeah, and I mean, uh, to, to jump onto that too, I think there's something about Jeremiah in particular where he... He has, he has things that he says that aren't exactly like predictions with a date, but he does say to Israel, if you keep acting like this, this is what's going to happen and the temple cannot save you. And indeed, history does bear him out correct. You know? So you can imagine a community preserving a voice like that saying, 
Um, you know, and maybe, maybe people looked back after 20 years or 10 years, people that maybe even knew him and didn't believe him mm. and then had a different kind of way of looking at it. Um, but there's a kind of truth that prophets had too, which wasn't even always predictive, mm -hmm. which was just like a truth about what's happening now. There's a prophetic element of just like analyzing the world. Like, what do you see? What is happening? Jenna, do you have another one you want to read out there? Yeah. So you guys were talking about salvation and sanctification at the beginning. So someone asked, if we are saved through faith in Christ, how are the Israelites saved since they lived before Christ? And secondly, is it possible to lose our salvation? Or are we, once we are saved, are we saved once and for all? Or are we always on a rocky ground with God? Now we're getting into it. <laughs> now we're getting down to it. Yeah, yeah go for it. Here, here you go. Take that back. Okay, I'll take the second one about can we lose our salvation or are we always on rocky ground with God? I think that the... The metaphor, Steve actually mentioned this earlier, but it's also the primary metaphor that we are given throughout all of scripture to understand our relationship with God is a nuptial metaphor. It's the metaphor of marriage. Um, and so we are the bride. Yes, you men too are the bride. Just gotta have to <laughs> deal with that. And uh, We've talked before in the panel about that. men wearing wedding dresses and this kind of imagery, <laughs> you know, about what that would be like. All right, so I think, I think um, that metaphor of a marriage can be very helpful in understanding the idea of salvation is ongoing sanctification. So in marriage, there is the moment of marriage. There's the moment when you have, you know, you're at the altar, you say your vows, that is the moment that a marriage is created, right? And, you know, I've been married for about 13 years, but tomorrow I could walk away from that. I could decide, you know what, I don't, I don't wanna be married. Like I could just, I could go and I could be unfaithful and I could never return, right? So there's also a sense that once that covenant has been established, there is this fidelity that needs to be lived out. That doesn't mean that I have a rocky ground, I'm on rocky ground with my husband, but it simply means that I can't just say, well, oh, I made those vows once, I don't actually have to continually live them out in my life, right? So, um, so that would be, I think, more of the Catholic perspective, which is um, not that there's only this one moment of conversion, but that the first moment is the beginning of a life of faith that is ongoing. But I, I don't feel a sense of anxiety about that, I would say, as mm -hmm. a Catholic, because all I can do is, in this moment, choose to be faithful to my bridegroom, both in terms of Christ as well as my husband, and so that's what I choose every day. So. Can I make a quick comment on uh, maybe a Protestant addition to that? I come from a background in youth ministry that really values that moment, like the, the wedding ceremony. You know, stand up at <laughs> camp and, and say, this week I became a Christian. Um, but if you've, you know, ask your parents what marriage is really like. You know, in the long run, the wedding day, beautiful as it is, is not the key to the marriage. You know, like, the, the marriage is, is all the days that come after, you know. And, and I think sometimes in Protestantism, particularly evangelicalism, you know, we can really, really value that moment, you know, the the where you went forward and got baptized or where you sat on a rock at camp and prayed some prayer. But really, you know, that's the, as Abby says, like that's the beginning of a relationship. And, and really, you know, what defines that is, is all of the kind of faithfulness to that relationship that follows. And I think sometimes we can really overemphasize that particular beginning. I think. Mm. Yeah, it made me think about, you know, this, this idea of a marriage metaphor. It made me think about like, what would marriage be like? Or what would even a friendship be like? Or even a dating relationship? You know, how sometimes it is if you're friends with somebody or maybe you just started dating somebody and like you literally look for like any cue at all that they really do like you or that they don't. 
I heard some people talking in the gym yesterday and she was like, he didn't even text me today. You know, I was thinking like, and the, the whole relationship is like now like on stormy seas, right? I mean, I think that this is like classic young love kind of stuff, right? Or classic kind of insecure friendship. Oh no, he looked at me like this. Oh no, she said that, you know, and it's like there's not really a kind of long lasting thing there. Whereas, I don't know, like having been married and, and doing some of this stuff and having had friends that are more like lifelong friends, I can't treat relationships like that, right? Like I can't look at my wife at breakfast and like she looks like a storm cloud and I can't think like, well, I guess our marriage is over. Maybe, maybe she's gonna divorce me tonight. I wouldn't even know, you know, like you can't do that day to day. And I think when you think about your relationship to God, like your salvific walk with God, like you can't be like thinking about like, I, I just, I don't know, it doesn't sound like a mature view of faith to think like at any moment if I like robbed a candy bar, suddenly I'm gonna go tumbling down into hell. And yet the prophets seem to suggest too that even these small kinds of things are really serious too and accumulated throughout time. I don't know if that makes sense. Do you wanna, do you wanna jump in on this, Dr. Joy? Uh, I, I think that the, the idea that it's so fragile is definitely not, um, at least from the biblical perspective, yeah. true because it's like, the prophets repeatedly keep calling people, even after they've turned away from God, that keeps calling them back, right? right. So I think if the, the grace of Jesus Christ has got to be at least to that level, right? It's not like <laughs> right. As, as soon as you do something wrong, it's like, okay, God, I'm, God's like, I'm done with you, right? No, no, it's like he's going to keep trying to woo you back, right? So I think that there's this idea that he's not that fragile in terms mm -hmm. of yeah. relationship with him. So I think that that's... Somebody funny. texted a passage, you know, from Hebrews or somewhere saying, yeah, but what about, aren't there ideas in scripture that like, if you've gone like too far and if you've just like rejected God to a really deep level, yeah, I think that was Dr. Favalli's metaphor about like divorce, about just like really walking away and not being able to get that back. That must be a real possibility in the life of faith to really, to really do that. There are really serious stakes in the life of faith on that front. That's Hebrews 6.12. There you go. I know that one. <laughs> just a quick comment. I, I think it's important to note that for Israel, too, you know, first century in the time of Jesus, but, but in the Old Testament as well, is, is the key of the covenant. Like the covenant with Abraham and Abraham's descendants is so, so essential. I mean, yes, they get the law and all the laws, expectations, the 600 plus laws and all that. But 400 years before that, they had the covenant, you know, and that that is the context, you know. So, yes, God expects a lot from us but God has also adopted us and put us in this relationship. And, and I think sometimes we can look at Judaism and think, oh man, that was like this hyper-legalistic, they were always afraid that God was gonna reject them at every moment. And yet God had said, no, you are my covenant people and I am in this relationship with you. I wanna turn a corner here just because there's interest I see over text and, and, and otherwise about, about a topic in particular. And this is gonna be a tough topic, warning, hard topic. Warning panel, get ready. Even in an example that we've already heard that Dr. Sherwood brought up from Hosea, this idea of the, the unfaithful woman but the faithful husband. and um, We also had some reading this week in Ezekiel, right? Ezekiel 16 and 23. How could you forget those chapters? Someone was asking over text, and I think it's a legitimate question. Why is it that when the prophets use these metaphors of sin and of righteousness and of domination and of violence, it's always the woman who is, to put it bluntly, the whore in the relationship, who's gone whoring away and the man is always the righteous one. Like that's, that's a very predictable, patterned, gendered image in the Bible. And it, it's pretty consistent and it's used a lot, not just a few times. Um, and some of this language even sounds violent. I mean, in Ezekiel especially, man, some of these images are just so weird. 
I mean, some of it almost sounds like abuse or something like that. In Ezekiel 16, there's this weird parable of God like finding a baby who's like been almost stillborn laying on the side and God nurses the baby, but then ends up marrying the baby later, but then rejects the baby and throws her back out in the wilderness to be tortured and to starve and to thirst because she has played the harlot with these other nations and all this kind of stuff. It's super bizarre. And I know that to read something like that for the first time when you're just used to the Bible as like, God's happy blessings for me, it was probably pretty weird, right? I mean, maybe it was weird for you, maybe it wasn't. Um, but at least because one person was asking about it, and I think it's an important topic. How do you all think about this issue of gender and violence in these kind of scenarios? Like, does it have to be a woman who's the one, who's the unfaithful one? Um, you know, couldn't we have had the metaphor in reverse? Any thoughts on that would be totally appreciated. <laughs> I don't think the metaphor works in reverse, and let me tell you why. It's not because women are whores, okay? <laughs> So we're dealing, this is kind of builds on what I was talking about earlier, how the primary metaphor that we have throughout scripture to understand the relationship between God and humankind is a nuptial metaphor. And the reason for this, I'm gonna get a little anatomical on y'all. <laughs> we, in our sort of modern time, we tend to think of men and women in terms of roles and traits. But when you're talking about the pre-modern world, they're really thinking about what really distinguishes men from women is our roles in generation. All right, our reproductive roles. That's ba that is really what distinguishes men from women. It's not so much traits, it's not so much social roles, right? It's just the fact that we have different reproductive niches, you might say, okay? So that is the basis of the metaphor. It makes more sense for a female to be a representative of humankind because it is the female who receives life from the man and then that creates new life within her and she nurtures that and gives birth to the world, right? So the male human or the male animal, whatever, the male of the species is that animal which can generate outside of himself and the female is that animal which can generate within herself, all right? So because of those re reproductive roles, it makes sense why we have primarily a metaphor for God as masculine because he, his relationship to creation as his relationship to humankind, he creates outside of himself, all right? He does not generate from within himself, all right? So that's why that metaphor exists. And that's why it doesn't make sense to just sort of re reverse the roles. Um, but the thing about the, that, and, that, and because that metaphor of sort of God as this, this husband, this bridegroom, and humankind, or the church, or the people of Israel as the bride, there is a side of that in which she is faithful, in which she is loving, in which she is, um, and so that's the positive side of it. But then there's the negative side, and that's when Israel is not faithful. That's when Israel runs away. That's when Israel rejects God. And I know in my life, I have lived that out many times. For about a decade, I was Gomer, right? Um, and now I'm trying in my life to live the other side of the coin. Um, so I think it would be a mistake to pull that metaphor too literally down into a kind of an earthly term where it's somehow affirming like abusive temporal relationships because that totally goes against um, what scripture says about how men and women should live in relationship, especially in the context of marriage. Um, so that would be my response to that. Yeah, anyone else want to jump in on this? Simple question. <laughs> Um, I think it also has, I mean, I, I affirm what um, Dr. Favalli was saying, but I think I also want to um, say that it's in also within the cultural context, right, in the sense that, like, oftentimes in marriage it would be the male or their family who would initiate, um, like, in terms of 
who gets married to who, right? Oftentimes in that context, the women wouldn't have that uh, right, right? And so there's a certain kind of, um, uh, in terms of God extending grace, in terms of God extending the covenant, as Dr. Sherwood was talking about, um, that would most naturally fit with this metaphor of God fitting the male role. Um, I think sort of within that cultural context, too, there's a certain kind of fittingness of that metaphor. Um, not to say that um, you know, women are somehow intrinsically whore-like or whatever, right? right? Uh, because every, I mean, any metaphor, any sort of figurative language has limits, right. right? Any analogy works on certain levels and then doesn't work on certain levels. So you have to sort of understand the constraints of a metaphor and an analogy. Because anytime you're making an analogy, you're drawing together certain similarities in the midst of great differences, right? That's, that's what sort of an analogy is. And so when, when scripture is making an analogy or making a metaphor between two things, that doesn't mean those two things are alike on all levels all the way down, right? So there's a sense in which we are feminine in relation to God, right? There's a sense in which that is figuratively and metaphorically true. But that doesn't mean that there aren't also limits to that analogy, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And the last thing I would add is that um, there's no lack of men behaving badly in scripture, right? It's not just, it's like, that's not the level of metaphor. Like, even the best heroes that we see in the Old Testament, David, he's a murderer and an adulterer, right? Not to mention all the really bad, bad kings, right? So there's no, um, <laughs> there's no lack of examples of men really being bad. So I, th I think that, uh, you know, yes, the imagery is really harsh in Ezekiel, but I think that kind of God's kind of judgment is coming down on, on both sexes in this regard. And just a quick comment about Hosea does, I mean, it's a beautiful story in some respects, but at one point he, he kind of has some of this, I'm going to shame you, I'm going to strip you naked in public to expose your sin. And, and you know, so, so not all of his behavior is, is gentle at all towards Gomer. Um, but even within that book, I, I, I mean, certainly most of the metaphors uh, throughout the Old Testament and whatnot are God as masculine and, and, and us as humanity in the feminine role. But like in, he, in Hosea 10, it, it's somewhat flipped. You know, there's this, this description of like a parent and a child. You know, I was the one who taught you how to walk. And, and as you learned how to walk, you walked away from me, kind of this rebellious teen. And in the description, like, I gathered you and held you to my cheek. I was the one who bent down and, and fed you. Um, and it doesn't explicitly say this is a mother that we're talking about, but it, it, it certainly seems kind of the image of a mother nurturing a young child in this sense. And then the child rebels and walks away. So in that case, it seems, you know, to be at least suggestive of, you know, God in kind of the, the more feminine paternal role and humanity or Israel in the kind of rebellious adolescent mm. or, you know, walking away. I want to, I want to flip the conversation just a little bit. We have about five minutes left with our panel. I want to make sure I sneak this in, this, this issue. I want to honor our creeds section for this week. Um, born of the Virgin Mary, conceived by the Holy Spirit. The Virgin Mary? Who the heck is the Virgin Mary? Okay, so we're getting ahead of ourselves in the plot a little bit. We did have this moment though in Isaiah chapter seven, which we talked about um, two weeks ago in the lecture. Namely, this idea that there was this promise in this very tense moment, in, intense and tense moment for Israel, that in fact, a woman would have a child and the birth of this child would mean something for the salvation of Israel, something really important. And we use this to kind of link the creed to a particular biblical moment. Looking forward in our text a little bit though, there will be a character, spoiler alert, named Jesus, who will be born. And he's going to be, and this is, we, we've gotten to the point in the creed already where we talked about 
I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son. What does it mean for God to have a son? Truly, in the New Testament story, as we'll get to it here in a few weeks, um, Jesus is born into the world through a woman, and this woman is named Mary. And in the New Testament and Christian tradition, Mary is a virgin. So Mary has gotten pregnant by ways that were not normal, let's just say, that were unique to her and in that state. I wonder, just taking a peek forward at that story, just very briefly, we've got about you know, five minutes or so here for everyone to cultivate discussion on this. What role should Mary play in the life of faith today? I mean, Mary made her way into the creed um, as, as part of what Christians must confess if you recite the Apostles' Creed. You mentioned Mary's name. Um, Jesus had a mom. Her name was Mary. What role does she play in the life of faith? And is it really important to believe that she's a virgin? Is it, is it crazy to believe that a virgin had a baby? You know, I wonder if anyone could jump in on any, any kind of angle on that that you, that you think is good. Too Nobody's too many too, too many questions there. Too many questions. Okay, we'll let we'll let uh, the, our Catholic panelists expound on Mary more. But growing up as a Protestant, and and maybe some of you would be like I always kind of looked at Catholics and, and their relationship with Mary as, as as almost idolatry. You know, like are they worshiping Mary as a god, and 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 is that you know that 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 seemed kind of wrong, and and certainly that was not what we did in the churches I grew up in. But if you read carefully, you know, the story in Luke, you know, like in the Magnificat, you know, you know, she talks about like, from here on, all generations will call me blessed, you know, and that, that God has put me, you know, Mary speaking here, into this unique role, and, and this is significant in salvation history. And, and so I, I guess I, I would really suggest for us Protestants, it behooves us to to really think long and hard, like, what does that mean? You know, you know when, when the text says that, when Scripture encourages us to revere Mary, um, you, you know, why don't we more? You know, like, maybe, the, maybe Catholics are kind of on to something about her significance that, that maybe in Protestantism we've tended to, to either ignore or, or forget or, or not you know, even consider in the first place. I have so much to say about Mary, and I don't have any time, but I love Mary. She's very important to me. She's led me so much more deeply to her son, and I'll, I'm forever grateful for that. In some ways, she has, in my life, given birth to Christ all over again. Um, By the book. And, <laughs> gosh. Um, oh, I was gonna say something else. Right, okay, if you, if you don't understand why Mary matters, you haven't thought deeply enough about the incarnation and what is happening there and why it matters. So I would encourage you to spend more time with that. And when, when our Lord was on the cross in the Gospel of John, the last thing he does before he dies, before he said, it is finished, he says to the Apostle John um, that Mary is his mother. He hands over Mary to the Apostle John and he says, this is your mother. Woman, this is your son. This is your mother. And that is what, that is Christ giving Mary to all of us as our mother. If you are part of the body of Christ, again, think about that. Think about what that means to be part of the body of Christ. That means you are connected to Christ in a very real, um, mystical, strange, but very real way. And that means that if you are connected to Christ, then you are also connected to Mary and that he has extended her motherhood to all of us who are in the church. 
Mm. I wonder, Dr. Choi, could I ask you specifically with, with just, just a minute remaining? I know it's not fair. Two minutes. Is it crazy for Christians to believe in miracles like a virgin birth? Um, I, I don't think it's crazy. I think um, I have like a 40-minute talk on this. But I'll try to condense it. I think a lot of it is this idea that miracles go against science. Right? We know how babies are made, right? You know, this virgin birth stuff is crazy. But the idea is that God's behind it and God can intervene into the world and make things happen that don't go by the ordinary uh, rules by which the world works. And it's very interesting that all, pretty much all of the um, leaders of the scientific revolution, like Newton and Kepler and all of them, all of them were devoutly religious, and, or virtually all of them, and they all conceived of the possibility of miracles. So I think there's really no good argument from either science or philosophy against the possibility of miracles. It's more the question of, did this miracle actually happen? Right? It's more mm. of an epistemic question, not necessarily, is it crazy to believe it? Because if, if you at least open the possibility of there being a God, it's certainly possible. As almost every panel we've had, I feel like we've just opened the door to a bunch of really serious and awesome questions, and I'd love to just like have a part two to this now where we really go much deeper, but I hope this is, has at least spurred your mind a little bit and spurred you to faith in some way. Would you join me in thanking this, this, this great panel? Thank you.